Uh, good morning. As we continue our walk through the book of Revelation, we come to this passage that I've entitled Armageddon, and of course that's coming from verse 16. Before we get there, I like to start by saying this. On June the 30th of 1998, just a few years ago, a movie was released in theaters entitled Armageddon. And a brief synopsis of that movie is after discovering that an asteroid the size of Texas was going to impact on Earth, a global killer as they call it, NASA, which is the National Aeronautics Space Administration, get these misfits, if you want to call them that, of deep core drillers to go up there, drill a hole, place a nuclear bomb in it, so hopefully the asteroid will uh, experience an explosion and it'll go into two halves, and each half pace pass safely by the Earth. Now, you might be asking yourself, Tim, why are you starting with talking about a movie, a special movie that opened up last century, 1998. I did that because I believe that movie, how it was produced and how it was marketed and people saw it, I've seen the movie. What do people think about when they hear the word Armageddon? I think that movie gives us some clues about our society when they hear about Armageddon. Well, some people think that's also a reference to World War III. In October the 7th of last year, a reporter for The Guardian named Julian Borgar reported this. He said, quote, Joe Biden has warned the world could face Armageddon if Vladimir Putin, Putin excuse me, uses a tactical nuclear weapon to try to win the war in Ukraine. Here again, the word Armageddon is used. And when people hear that, they think, in the world, World War III, we're going to blow everything up. Now, I looked in the dictionary, and Webster's defines Armageddon as the site or time of a final and conclusive battle between the forces of good and evil. Here's my question as I started this uh, last week, early last week. What does the Bible say about Armageddon? What does it tell us about this? Is there a battle of Armageddon? Is there a war going to happen called Armageddon? And what does that really mean as we look in the scripture? So let's go back to verse 12 and let's look at it in context. Well, now the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. Now you'll see a picture of the Euphrates River behind me. That river runs approximately 1,728 miles from northwest to southeast. And it's always been used to mark boundaries uh, between the east and the west. And it's fueled ancient rivalries between Western Europe and the Orient. So it's been used to kind of divide lines between different nations. Now, in the next picture, you'll see the Zagros Mountains. You see where the Euphrates River goes into the Persian Gulf, but then this, as it goes there, you go a little further past the river, the, the desert stretches a bit, and then you have the Zagros Mountains, which are in modern-day Iraq. So that gives you kind of a reference to where this river is. 
I don't have a picture of it, but you also have a major river called the Tigris River. If you were to pan out all together and look at Iran and Iraq, the whole region is referred to as Mesopotamia, and that's where they believe civilization started. Somewhere in there, scholars have proposed that's where the Garden of Eden was. We're not really, really don't know where the Garden was. That's just a, a guess. But that gives you some reference point about what's going on. So when he poured out his bowl, what happened? Its water was dried up so that the way it would be prepared for the kings from the east. Now, one might suppose this is related to some resentment, uh, maybe some hatred to some degree to the beast and to his government in the west. However, it's more likely that it's a unifying of all these kingdoms coming together to go against the work of God, and they're coming to team up with or to ally themselves with the beasts that we see back in chapter 13. Now, interesting enough, I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to throw this out here. It has been reported that the Euphrates River is drying up even as I speak to you today. It's in the news. I don't have time to chase all that. I just want to throw it out there. Go do your research, pull out your Bible, and see what conclusions you can make. A lot of people say that's one of the, the bowls that have been poured out. It depends on how you look at the book of Revelation. I don't want to take time up chasing all that down. However, that could be a uh, table talk discussion easily. Spend a lot of time on that. I just want you to let you know where this river is and what area of the world we're talking about. Now in verse 13, John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and now the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet Three unclean spirits like frogs. That's important because frogs were unclean animals in the Bible. They always were viewed with loathing, a, a hatred, a dislike, or disgust. And maybe some of you don't like frogs very much. How many in this room like frogs? Well, see, there you go. Frogs still have a bad light here, even in even Forestburg. Now, frogs did constitute one of the plagues on Egypt back in Exodus chapter 8. And clearly from the text, these frogs have a despicable nature. Look back in verse 14. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world, literally the inhabited earth, to gather them for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Notice it doesn't say the battle of Armageddon. It says the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. I have to be very careful what I say next. The spirit world is real. There is a spiritual realm that we cannot see with our naked eyes, but it is real. And there is spiritual warfare going on, even as I speak to you in this moment. Now, the final war has been won with Jesus on the cross. He raised victorious over sin in the grave. But there's still a battle waging for people's souls every day and every moment. And I would even go this far to tell you that the greatest battle is not necessarily outside these walls. It's inside the wall where the church meets Sunday after Sunday and decisions are being made that are going to pack eternity. There is where the spiritual battle really wages. Are you going to answer to the call that God, not Tim, but God's placed on your heart in that moment, or are you going to sit back and not do anything? That's really the question, isn't it? 
And may I suggest even a further statement to say on Sunday morning, a hurricane can come through most churches, we'll be okay because we're holding so tight to that pew that we're not going to move. What say you? Now the demonic world, and as far as I can tell, based upon scripture, is filled with fallen angels that followed Lucifer when he rebelled against God. There are called those, quote, who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode. You can see that in Jude 6. Now, here's the most dangerous part. I have to qualify. I believe in miracles, okay? I believe God can heal through a doctor. He can heal through medicine, but he can also just miraculously heal somebody. Just, and it happened to me in my first pastor. We've been praying for this lady. who was in a bad car wreck. The doctor said, if she comes out, even if she comes out at all, she's going to be a vegetable. They just said there's no hope. But one day she just woke up. And a month later, she was in church, sitting in a pew, and everybody was going up to her. Are you, are you okay? Are you sure you should be here? Well, we've been praying for this very thing, thing to happen, and yet, I hate to say it, but even I found myself come of doubting a little bit. But you know the greatest miracle we can witness? When someone comes to Christ, when someone who's an enemy of God, an alien from the family of God, an enemy of God, now becomes his son or daughter, part of the family and the righteousness that Jesus has covers them. Like my brother Roger said, it's like a robe that covers us, that when he looks on them now, he doesn't see their sin and shame. He sees Jesus' righteousness. Scripture also warns us about signs, that the enemy will use to deceive us. We must be very careful to make sure that we have discernment about what is being done. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but we have to know what Scripture says because the reason the enemy does that is to deceive the elect, you and I. He wants to deceive us, lead us astray. In this particular case, they're deceiving the kings of the world. Why? They want them on their side. It makes me wonder this morning, I was driving through the rain, surely the demons know what's going to happen, and yet they still do this in almost a futile way, knowing that they have to know they're going to win. But yet they do that, they go out and they deceive. They gather the kings of the whole world, To gather in one place, look back in verse 14, for the great day of God, the Almighty. Now comes verse 15, which kind of seems out of place at first glance. Most of your Bibles are being red letters because that's what Jesus says, going back to some of the Beatitudes that Jesus taught in the Gospels. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed are the one who stays awake. Let's stop there. Now, most of your interpreters, myself included, believe this was for John's audience as a warning and also as a warning to you and I, for all people that would come after that audience in the church age, for all our fellow Christians. This is a warning for us. 
Now some know that this as a thief comes unexpectedly. Right now a thief could be breaking in your house. You won't know it until you get back and find that something's missing. So some say, well, when Jesus comes, we won't know he's there until after we see the results of his coming. I don't necessarily hold that view. If you go into chapter 17 and following, you see that Christ does return. Now, that may be as secret as a thief breaking and no one knows about it, but no one knows when that time will be. He is coming. We just don't know when, what year, what day, what time it will be. It will be unexpected. When we least expect it, he will return. Now, what this warning is for this audience back then was these... Let me back up. People will become the knowledge of Christ and be saved during the tribulation, although most of them and all of them will pay for it with their lives. They'll become martyrs, all right? So this is a warning for those who are being urged to be consistent in their faith despite all the terrible things they're experiencing during the tribulation. And to apply it to ourselves, this is an encouragement, but mostly a warning to you and I to be consistent in our faith regardless of what we might be facing in our personal lives or in the lives of the church. Now, may I say this, that in this country we are experiencing things that most of us would thought we'd never see happen. The enemy is attacking in ways that kind of surprise us sometimes. It shouldn't shock us or surprise us the enemy knows time is running short. He doesn't have much time left. And he has one goal. Jesus told us what his goal is. To destroy, to steal, and to kill. He knows his doom is sure. And he wants to drag as many of us as he can with him. And by the way, Satan does not sit on the throne in hell, reigning over hell. Hell was recreated for him and the fallen angels. It wasn't intended for man in the first place. There will be in torment just like everybody else. And he knows where he's headed. He wants to take you and I with him. So blessed is the one, happy is the one, who stays awake, who's alert, and keeps his clothes or remains clothed so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Now this is not talking about physical nakedness, okay? Even our society today, there is some restraint, maybe, I don't know, it's getting worse every day, about being out, being out in public naked. Most people feel shameful about that. It's getting a little worse, but most of us will not want to be outside for everybody to see us naked. But this is not what the text is talking about. The text is talking about maintaining purity and righteousness before God so we do not end up naked and experience shame. In other words, revealing our rebellious heart against God, revealing our sin in our heart. So here's the deal. Remain watchful. Keep that cloth of righteousness that God, that God gave you when you came to him. That's what he's talking about. Those who maintain watchfulness and vigilance, 
clothed in righteousness that was bestowed upon them by Christ, those are the ones who are blessed. This is me, as I'm thinking about this, I prayed about it, and I can't help but say this, that it's going to be difficult to do this, to remain clothed in righteousness. Why else would the warning be there? Christ told us, you will experience tribulations. You will experience trouble and distress. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they hate me, Jesus says, they will hate you because you love me because of my name. Do we not see that being played out more and more every day? And let's just qualify that one more, shall we? Those of us who know Christ can come back at any moment, have that knowledge. We are blessed when we remain vigilant and watchful. And we keep that righteousness that was bestowed on us by Christ. We are blessed. I am concerned, dearly beloved, that the church in America, we are so apathetic it's dangerous. And I understand traditionally, historically, we have kind of distanced ourselves from the charismatic uh, view that goes too far with signs. They're not done in the proper manner, but yet, in that same manner, I feel like we've downplayed somewhat spiritual warfare. It's real. This, what we're reading about, it's not a fairy tale, it's not a myth, it's not a legend. It's going to happen. How can I sit there in my work area with my co-workers and not say one word when I know this is going to happen? How can I truly tell my daughters and my wife I love them if I don't let them know? You see what I'm getting at? It reminds me of a song I recently heard on the radio. It's by King and Country, or for King and Country is the name of the group. I just want to show you, uh, share with you some lyrics from their song, What Are We Waiting For? So what are we waiting for? Why are we wasting all the time like someone's making more? What are we praying for? What are we saving for? And this is what got me. What if we could be the light that no one could ignore? Wow. That when someone sees us as individuals or corporately as a church, they would see the light of Jesus. They could ignore it. They try to explain it away, but they can't because it's there. And they see it. So much so they come to you and say, I don't know if I believe everything that you believe, but I see something in you that I desperately want. There's people out there hungry for it. And it will come to you in ways you can't even imagine. But we have to prepare ourselves and ask God to give us divine appointments and be ready. Be ready to witness to somebody. I'm not saying open up a Bible and read it. I'm talking about you share with them who Christ is.
what's at stake. And admit to them, I don't have all the answers. But I know who does, and we can seek him together if you're willing to do so. That will start the journey for them. And where it leads us to verse 16. They gather them together to a place which in Hebrew is called Har Migadon, which in most translations will be Armageddon. Now the concept or, per or perception of the last great battle of history, Armageddon, is ingrained in and so impressed on the vocabulary of everyone on the planet that even people not even claiming to be Christians or know anything about Christianity, they know about Armageddon. That word alone invokes so much in people's minds and their imagination. Now the word Armageddon is actually a combination of two Hebrew words, Har meaning mountain, and Megiddo is the city in the valley, valley of, I'm trying to pronounce this, I may goof it up, Isterion. Now there's a picture of Megiddo's ruins right there. That's the, the ruins of Megiddo. Now you have to realize that civilizations, as they fall and rise, they build upon themselves. That's where they call that a, a tell. And the archaeologists, they dig down in there to find stuff. That's why they dig, and that's the ruins there. It's been highly excavated. Uh, the place called Megiddo, and there's the plains of it. Now, it lies on the south side of the valley, and it's not far from the beginning of Mount Carmel. Now, the site of the ancient city of Megiddo and the hill country, the mountain surrounding the valley, may well be the staging point for either initiation or the culmination of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, go to the next one. you see the view of Armageddon. It'll give an eye points view. Go ahead and go to the next one. Kind of gives you an idea. I wish I had a laser pointer at this point. There's Israel off to, the, to your left. You see where Comperium Sea of Galilee is. The Jordan River. Israel's off to your right about 50, 60 miles away. But in that area somewhere is what most scholars refer to as the Valley of Armageddon. This is the place where these people are going to gather together to mount up an attack against God. I could be wrong, and I'll be fantastic if you do prove me wrong, because that means you're searching your Bible first. I believe this is the only verse that the word Armageddon appears in the entire Bible. I believe that statement to be correct. I've searched, and I've searched, and I've searched. Do your search yourself. See what you find. So there is no battle of Armageddon. It's referring to a site that they will gather together, the kings and the demons, to do war with God. It's 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Now there is no battle, but at the second coming of Christ, there is one, if you want to call it a battle, it's not really a battle. It's in Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. It talks about when Christ comes back, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and what happens. Later, I'm not going to read that verse, but later in Revelation 19, he says that Christ is there to that place where they had gathered together. Now listen to verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19 and follow along if you like. In fact, I would recommend you follow along. I saw heaven opened, 
and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As a child growing up, I never heard this description of Jesus before. It's not the kind, gentle Jesus that the world likes to think he is. Is he gentle? Yes. Is he humble? Yes. Is he forgiving? Yes. He has full of grace. But he's also righteous and holy. And by his very, very character, he has to punish sin. Notice what it ta- tells us, that his road clothed, the road that he's clothed with looked like it's been dipped in blood, and that he's trampling the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. I picture Jesus stomping, and what you see splatter on his robe are the blood of his enemies. And the last thing they see is that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, do you know him, this coming king? He's not coming back on a donkey, peaceful, a remote area called Bethlehem, in a manger, laid in a feeding trough. Mm-mm. He's coming back on a white horse. And that would mean a lot to the people back in that day because a conquering general, as he rode into Rome, would be on a white horse with a ticker tape parade the whole nine yards they would cheer. But this Jesus that humbled himself, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, he's coming back as a conquering king. He will come back on a white horse. And on that day, it's not going to matter how many times you came to church. It's going to matter, did, were you the church, not going to a church? And it's going to matter about your relationship with him. That's the thing that you need to have. Because you can be so busy about doing all of the things of God. I can preach the best messages, be the best orator, all these wonderful things, but still miss it. Because Jesus said, many will come to me on that day. Lord, Lord, didn't do these many wonderful things. He says, uh, yeah, you did those, but guess what, Tim? You didn't know me. I didn't know you. Can you imagine how terrible that would be. 
Not only most of you talking to you at different functions of the first more than others, got to know some of you in the last almost seven years. And I would say, based on what I know and what you portray, that I would feel comfortable saying most of in this room are born-again believers in Christ. Okay, that's great. God is asking us to take another step. Not for salvation purposes, but to fulfill the mission to which he's called us. Think about that imagery. Think about what's going to happen. Think about your loved ones, your friends, people you care about, strangers, all out there going about their business. And meanwhile, seconds are ticking by. As for King and Country said, why are we wasting so much time? You think someone's going to make more of it? There is a appointed time and a place for all this to happen. And God transcends history, but he's guiding all of history, pushing, pulling it to a specific point when he will send his son back again. And we do not know when that's going to happen. It can happen the next minute. It can happen next week. I don't know. But I don't want to be found naked. The other thing we have no control over, we go to doctors, we should watch our health, that's great, and we should do those things. But we do not know when this physical body that we're in will cease to exist. And you'll be thrown off into eternity. And I'm going to conclude with this. We, we talk about coming to Jesus, have everlasting life. Let me just throw a little twist on that. What I mean by that is this. You're going to live forever. It's a matter of where you're going to be. Heaven or hell. And that decision is completely yours to make. Your mama can't do it for you. Your daddy can't do it for you. Your friends, I can't do it for you. It has to be your decision coming from your heart. It's amazing to me, as I've really dug down in the book of Revelation, how we look at it and think all oh, the enemy's going to get his but how many warnings are through this book for us? The revelation begins in the seven, love, seven letters to the seven churches. Warnings to us. What do you desire to see? Do you want to see more come to the saving knowledge of Christ? But not just that. You want to see disciples? You want to see an outpouring of God's spirit that we read about in the history books? God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I believe it comes down to this. We must search our heart and let God do so. And when he speaks, we do not need to hesitate. Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know what you have in mind, but I know you're calling me to this, and I'm going to do it. How can I not? You are able to impact eternity. People's souls are hanging in the balance. We know the answer, and his name is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One.
what are you going to do with that knowledge? Almighty God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, you have given us a small glimpse of what awaits us in the future. God, you hold all time in your hands. This is your creation. This is your story. Yet you've called us out to be your lights in this world. As you call back your creation to yourself. Father, I I pray that in our personal lives that we will see people the way you do. Don't let our petty differences come between us anymore. Don't let us see each other as created beings by you, made in your likeness. The beings that were the reason why your son paid that price. love amazes me I'm astounded by your grace and your mercy as the old hymnal says we need you every hour we need you continue to speak may your spirit have this way here this morning your will be done Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?